Greetings, Earthlings. Stand by for a transmission from Fuzzy Logic. Yes, this is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show, and we are creatures known as Homo fuzziensis. In fact, there are two examples of that species in the studio this morning. Myself, Rod, and Fuzzy Logic regular, Amon Lindsay. Good morning, Amon. Okay, Rod. Now, we seem to like aliens, we humans. We like to look up to space and imagine those little saucer things zipping over the skies and landing in the field and leaving the crop circles and things like that. Now, did you see a show on SBS uh, recently, and it was called My Mum Talks to Aliens? Now, the lady in that uh, documentary, I think she was seriously ill-advised, she uh, decided to debate Charlie Lineweaver at the Shine Dome on the subject of aliens. Now, I'm smart enough to know that I'm not smart enough to debate Charlie Lineweaver, but that's the mistake she did make. And guess who we have in the studio? Yes, we have the man himself, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver from Mount Stromlo Observatory. And welcome back to Fuzzy Logic. Well, thanks for inviting me, Rod. And uh, what was your remembering of this uh, event? What happened at the Shine Dome? Well, what, do you want the uh, two-minute version or the uh, two-hour version? Uh, my, <laughs> I was approached by the uh, production company of SBS who said, we're, writing a, we're doing a documentary, and could you participate in a debate with Mary Rodwell about her, uh, her, her statements that, uh, not herself personally, but uh, the people that she's been trying to take care of have been abducted by uh, aliens, and she thinks she has lots of evidence for that. And I said, oh, sure, would I debate that. That's part of what I think about as, as an astrobiologist. And so uh, I accepted. And uh, I think that, I think formally, uh, the debate was won by my side, in other words, skepticism. But I think nationally, the debate was won by her side because the SBS documentary was proposed as, this mother has a problem with her son, and that's because she thinks that alien abductees are telling the truth, and he thinks it's not necessarily true. But they set me up as an, an expert who is going to kind of get in the way of this reconciliation between the mother and her son. And so I came off as being the bad guy. But it was a, so it was an emotional issue that they took forefront, not the issue of whether people have or have not been abducted by aliens. So I feel a little bit set up, but that's the way media works, so I hope you won't do that to me today, Rod. Uh, I am planning a few traps for you, but... Uh, <laughs> not, not I'm wary now, Rod. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I think I'd have to be pretty sharp to trap you, Charlie. Uh, SBS didn't need much but emotion to trap anybody, I think. Uh, no, there, there seems to be something in we humans that likes the thought of there being benign creatures, or sometimes not quite so benign creatures, mm-hmm. coming from out there and visiting us and doing stuff. I mean... What is it about the human psyche that that seems to be attracted to that? Well, more generally, Rod, I think you're talking about something called the, these benign creatures are often called gods and God, and sometimes they're known as aliens. So I think you're right. We do, as a human beings, having a need for some higher power that can understand us better than we can or forgive us in ways that we can't imagine. But I, I, when I talk about this topic, I, I think of my anthropological friends who tell me that if you, tr- if you contact a tribe anywhere in the world, some remote tribe that has never been contacted before, they will have a form of religious belief known as animism. 
That means that you put spirits, you believe in spirits behind the rock or anything that you don't understand, like a thunderstorm or the wind or the season, some things that seem beyond comprehension. You say, well, that's the God who's doing that. And when and you tell a story about the, a God or a spirit. Now, that's something that is universal. This is very important that it is universal. That means if you're a human being, that's what you do naturally. And science is not, cannot claim that kind of universality amount among tribes that you're just discovering. But science is spreading and becoming a universal kind of system of thought the best way we think we know of attaining knowledge. So there is this, the universality of animism versus this growing universality of, hey, let's find out some facts, let's do some experiments. And these sometimes clash and, uh, well, uh, so I don't think it's difficult to understand why people believe in benign aliens. But on the other hand, they also believe in very aggressive aliens that are coming and going to eat you up. You can see in Hollywood movies, there's a division between the good E.T. who just wants to call home, wants to help humanity join the galactic club, and the evil ones who just want to destroy you and eat you. The same thing is true of the gods that we have. They're the good ones that try to help you, and then the other ones that try to kill you and eat you and are on the side of your enemies. So I, I think there's a definite parallelism that should be taken seriously there. Uh, yeah, I think also in an increasing chaotic world, we like the feeling that somebody or something is in control. And just the idea that the world or the universe is this random sort of a place with all these processes going on, like nuclear reactions and mm -hmm. uh, things whizzing through space and things that we just don't, nobody really controls. It just happen. It's kind of, it doesn't really gel with our, you know, we, we're brought up as children our parents are in control of our lives and there's a plan for us but is the universe really like that is it is it really planned and controlled in some way or is it just is probably one of the most articulate statements about this sentiment that you just talked about was by steven weinberg at the end of his book the the first three minutes where he talked about big bang nucleosynthesis and he said in a, he was flying over the U.S. looking down at all the fields and he was thinking about the first three minutes of the universe and he said, the more we find out about the universe, the more pointless it all seems. And this is coming from a Nobel laureate in physics and I have always disagreed with this and although I think it's wonderful that we should think about, you know, meaning and whether our lives are meaningful, but, um, but I've disagreed with it because if you have really high expectations and think that humans are really important and we're the best thing that have ever come out of the universe, then you will be disappointed by all this more or less neutral stuff that we're finding out about our place in the universe and how we got there. In other words, if you think we're really, really, really special and the and scientific progress tells you, well, this is how you came about. Well, it's kind of special, but it's not really as special as you want. Then you feel, you interpret that as not confirmation of what you want to believe, but as pointlessness. I, on the other hand, say, hold myself guilty. I say, wait a minute, let's lower our expectations. Let's approach the issue as not that we're really, really valuable or really, really crap, but I'm not sure what we are. And then when you find out about our evolution, you're not disappointed. You don't feel things are pointless. And then you can create your own meaning rather than be distraught by all of the neutrality and more or less neutral information that you're finding out about the evolution of humanity. Well, do you think the fact that we are here at all to ask the question, now, that in itself makes us fairly special, doesn't it? Even if it is the result of a fairly random sort of a pr process we don't understand. Well, I was, that reminds me of a cartoon by a guy named... Uh, 
Well, it's a cartoon by Garrett Hardin, and he has a picture of a fish, and then a an amphibian, and then a primate, and then a human being. And the fish is saying, eat, survive, reproduce. And the, the amphibian is saying, eat, survive, reproduce. And the primate is saying, eat, survive, reproduce. But then this big-brained, uh, bu- uh, big-brained hominid is saying, what is it all about? Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is because you just said... Asking the question, what is it all about, is a great thing that we can able to do, and doesn't that make us special? But it seems to me that it also makes us silly, because our brig brain is deceiving us into no... Because we know already what it's all about, they know what it's all about, eat, survive, reproduce. And to pretend that a brain that has evolved to allow us to eat, survive, reproduce, also allows us to ask a question, what is it all about undermining what everybody else knows and what we already do know, that's that's problematic. It's not just a good thing. It also can be a bad thing in the same way that our big brains allow us to create atomic weaponry, big things that can kill us. And we know, so many people think, our brains are great. We're the most adaptive creatures ever, ever evolved. We can do everything. But we can also kill ourselves. And that big brain is a very dangerous thing. And uh, so it's just like anything, like a, like nuclear power. It's good and it's bad. Or the information age, it's good and it's bad. And uh, we have to recognize that and rather than say, aren't we special? Aren't we good? We have a big brain. We can kill these things. We can kill whales. We can deforest things. We can ruin the planet. Isn't that wonderful that our big brain can do that? Now, the people say, oh, no, our big brain, we should be able to control our stewardship of the planet. But it puts us in a godlike position that I don't think that we necessarily deserve. And it gives it appeals to people's vanity. And, and I guess that troubles me. Ah, well, I, what I find interesting is not so much whether we ask good or bad questions, but the fact that we can ask a question, that we have an intelligence of some sort. Right, right. I oh, know intelligence, I think, might be a good thing, but there's a lot of creators out there who you wouldn't call intelligent. A big tree, for example, is a big Sydney fig tree, or a big, uh, a big beautiful eucalyptus tree behind my house. And I wouldn't call it has, it has, doesn't have the central nervous system that animals have found useful for their survival, but it does have communication, it's sensitive, and it's definitely alive. And to say that our adaptation to survival is better than its, I think it is something that I'm very uncomfortable with. I think all living creatures are unique, are, are all, you know, we are unique, but so are all other living creatures. Ah, yes. Actually, now I want to talk to you later about the nature of intelligence and whether we see it as inevitable or not. But I want to bring us right back to Earth for a moment because a couple of weeks ago you were kind enough to uh, answer and ask Fuzzy Column for us. And uh, these questions, by the way, which are coming up in the Ask Fuzzy Columns are coming from a classroom of seven- and eight-year-old school kids, and my daughter, who's a trainee teacher, went in with a piece of paper, and she said to these kids, have you got any science questions? And within about five minutes, she had the sheet full, and these little bright young minds that come up with these things, and I look at these questions, and I'm going, wow, these kids are so young, and they're so fresh in their mind. And so one of them was, why the earth is round? It wasn't the most exciting question, but uh, what was your answer to that one? Well, first of all, I think it is an exciting question because uh, obviously the Earth doesn't look round from where you, I, or any kid sits. It looks kind of flattish. And uh, so the idea that you might ask, well, I've been shown pictures of the Earth and it looks kind of round. Well, why would it be like that despite you know, all the evidence to the contrary? In any case, the Earth is round and so is the moon. And my question, my answer was the Earth is not round. Round is a two-dimensional thing. It should be spherical. Why is the Earth spherical? So let's. So why is the Earth spherical? Well, well the kid's been sent out of the room as a result. <laughs> <laughs> so why is the Earth round? We'll just use round as a as a 
symbol for spherical. So the Earth is spherical for the same reason the Moon is and the Sun is and Jupiter is and Saturn is. So it's not the only thing around that's spherical. So what is it about all these bodies that has what's a common feature that they have? And the short answer is self-gravity. That means there's enough stuff there to create a gravitational field that's strong enough to undo the strength of the molecular forces and atomic forces that usually hold things together in very weird ways. For example, I'm looking at your hair and eyebrows and nose right now. They are very weird shapes sticking all over the place, and I can tell that gravity hasn't played much of a role in forming them. But if I took your nose and made it about, so it had a radius of about 300 kilometers, I did a calculation that shows that the self-gravity of your nose would then keep it from being like a nose shape and would be more round. And that's true of any type of material in the universe as long as its density is about the density of water or the density of the earth. Uh, the thought of the, an astronomical body in the shape of my nose is very appealing. Well, it won't be because it would, well, it depends on how big. If you had it only a, only a hundred kilometers in, in radius, then it would kind of look like a nose. But you get to 300, we know that that would start to have enough self-gravity to pull it into a sphere. Now, a couple of uh, factors in this question which I wanted to ask you about in addition to just the size of the body. What about the material that it's made from? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's important in some, in a little bit of a way, in the following way. Uh, for example, if you have a body that's made out of water, it doesn't have to be 300 kilometers radius to make it a sphere. You can have a, a sphere. It would well, you can, actually, you have a, you've seen maybe bubbles of water or escaped drops of urine in the space station where they, and they will be round and they'll be round because of surface tension that's not that's not really the same thing but it acts in the same way um, so the density does matter but not that much for example the the types of densities you have in the universe are things that the density of water like water or like uh, Saturn or Jupiter or things that are kind of rocky and have a density of about five times larger. All these objects, when they get to be about a size of uh, two, three hundred kilometers radius, they turn into spheres almost independent of what, how strong the material is or what the density is. Ah, now what about the age of the thing? So does it matter how old it is? In some sense, yes, because the solar system used to be hot and things in it used to be hotter. Now, when things are hotter, they get softer, kind of like butter. You know, butter is cold, it's hard, and when it heats up, it gets soft. Well, the same thing is true for rock. When rock gets uh, heated up, it gets soft, and it's, in fact, lava is soft, very hot rock. So about four and a half billion years ago, there were a lot of hard, a lot of soft, hot objects that were spinning, and they were able to assume a more spherical shape sooner because they were so... Uh, so, so not viscous, but they were kind of uh, like liquid, and they didn't harden up until later. And so their form, their shapes were formed very early on when they were malleable and soft and more easily approaching that spherical shape. All right, now we have another Ask Fuzzy coming up from you in a couple of weeks. Tomorrow's actually is one I've written, and it's uh, the old chestnut, why do pigeons bob their head when they walk? Why do pigeons bob their head when they walk? Yeah. An, I didn't even know that was an old chestnut or a walnut or even a peanut. <laughs> oh, yeah. What did you say? Uh, it, basically, it's to do with holding their visual field still for a oh. moment. So their, their body moves forward, their head it lags a moment, then their head shoots forward, so it's oh, a thrust. Oh, kind of like a ballet dancer spinning in 
looking in one position and quickly changing and then looking in the same position yeah, again. Yeah, that's it, I exactly, see. yeah. Okay, and, that makes and actually, sense. And I didn't write it in the column because I can't get too frivolous with my Canberra Times columns, but uh, I was reminded of the old person versus the young person, see, because in the young person, the body shoots forward and then the head catches up. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and in the old person, the head shoots forward and then the body catches up. <laughs> but right. so when you're reading the column in oh. uh, the Times 2 supplement tomorrow, uh, remember that one. All right. But here is another Ask Fuzzy, and I'm going to. It follows on from the uh, track I'm about to play you. And look, I promise you, I'm not going to play Rolf Harris too many times on Fuzzy Logic. But uh, anyway, old timers amongst you will recognise what this is. Rolf Harris, you remember him with a wobble board and he does those pictures. Timey Kangaroo uh, Down. Timey yeah. Kangaroo I Down. Real, I yeah. love that guy. Yeah, that's him. This is. Uh, <laughs> he's an artist in uh, in England now. He's yeah, he's he's quite a character. So he is uh, Jake the Beck, and we have a little special for you, uh, Charlie, at the end of this track. Here it is. I'm Jake the Beck, with his extra leg. Wherever I go, through rain and snow, the people always let me know. There's Jake the Beck. With his extra The day that I was born, oh boy, my father nearly died. Well, he couldn't get my nappies on no matter how he tried. Because I was born with this extra leg. And since I had not fun, I've forgotten the blessed words, but keep playing for goodness sake. And I tell you, that's no fun. I'm Jake the Peg Diddle Diddle With his extra leg diddle diddle I'm Jake the Peg Diddle I was a dreadful scholar I found all the lessons hard Well, the only thing I knew for sure was Three feet make a yard <laughs> To count to ten I used my fingers And... And if I needed more, by getting my shoes and socks off, I could count to 24. I'm... Hold it, fellas, hold it, fellas. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. <laughs> count to 25. I'm Jake the Painted. Whatever I did, they said was false. They said quick march, I did a quick waltz. And then they shouted at me, put your best foot forward. But which foot? I said it's very fine for you. You only got a choice of two. But me, I'm Jake the Pegdiddle. With his extra leg. Dr. Charlie Lineweaver, Mount Stromo Observatory, ANU. I'm Charlie Lineweaver, and you're listening to Community Radio 2XX. But how are we doing that? Our signal is speeding across the ether at the speed of light. Only, there is no ether. And the sound is rattling around your ears, buzzing through your neurons. You're a vast assembly of protons, atoms, quarks, quantum weirdness. That's what you are. The universe is a strange place, stranger than you imagine, stranger than you can imagine. I'm Charlie Lineweaver, and I recommend you tune in to Fuzzy Logic on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. on 2XX.
And indeed, that is where you are today, uh, listening to Fuzzy Logic on Community Radio 2 X. My name is Rod, and special guest today, Dr. Charlie Lionweaver from Mount Stromlo Observatory and Amon Lindsay, Fuzzy Logic regular. Now, thanks for recording that. Uh, I do enjoy playing that uh, promo on air, Charlie. And I hope you liked the, what Tom did with the effects. Yes, <laughs> sound effects are always good. And I remember your, uh, the look on your face as uh, I got you to read that out because it says, or you say there, the signal is travelling through the ether. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't think you realised I was about to say, but there is no ether. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, but the reason I played old Rolf Harris a moment ago was another one of the questions that came from that room full of school kids. And the child asks... Why do we have two legs and not three? I think this is a really deep and really interesting question. What's your feeling about this one, Charlie? Well, whenever... My approach to these questions is the following. You notice when the child asks, why is the Earth round? Well, it's important to see, okay, what else is around? And I pointed out that the moon, the sun, the Jupiter, there are lots of other things that are around. So let's generalize this question to... Why don't birds have three legs? Or why don't dogs have three legs? And you look around and see how many legs things do have. And it's always important to understand how things got the way they are today. And by looking at our skeleton, and the skeleton of a cow, a dog, a frog, a chipmunk, you can see that there are certain features in common. There's a vertebral column, and there are four limbs. Two of our limbs we call hands, and two we call legs. A dog has four legs, bird has two legs, and it has two front legs, which it uses for wings. We have two front legs, and we call them hands. So you can see that the, all of these creature, creatures have evolved from a common ancestor, which is called a tetrapod, a four-footed thing. And in fact, we know that about 20 million years ago, we also were not two-legged. Matter of fact, about we started walking on two feet about three, maybe four, maybe five million years ago. Chimps, for example, and and other great apes uh, are called knuckle walkers. They're not fully bipedal. They walk on two legs, but they also walk on their knuckles. And uh, if you look at other primates and other monkeys, they are more quadrupedal. They walk more on four legs, but sometimes on two. Now, if you go back earlier in our ancestry, you can see that all of our ancestors were were four-legged. If you go back even further, you can see that, well, the number of legs was kind of some, some, an unknown kind of thing. Um, for example, we have a common ancestor with insects. Now, insects have six legs and spiders have eight legs, but you notice the numbers six, eight, four, they're all even numbers. And the reason they're even is because the common ancestor of all these critters had bilateral symmetry. If you hold up your left hand, hold up your right hand. Hold up your left foot, hold up your right foot. We are bilaterally symmetric. One eye over here, one eye over here. The teeth on this side of our mouth look a lot like the teeth on the other side. That bilateral symmetry is something that became fixated in our ancestral evolutionary history, I would say about 600, maybe 500 million years ago. So that's something that we all, all of us, including you know, including the dogs, the uh, insects, the spiders, the mosquitoes that bite you on the nose, these things are of bilateral symmetry. And that's something that biology has had to work with for 500 million years. 
So that's not a principle that the ontogeny, the, the development of us as individuals from a single cell fertilized egg to the adult individuals that we are, that's something that was worked in from the very beginning. That was a blueprint that started things off. And evolution does not like to fiddle with the most fundamental aspects of the evolution, the ontogeny, the development of an individual. It can fiddle with the hair color, skin color, nose size, but it is very, very resistant to fiddling with the, one of the most fundamental features of body plans, and that would be the bilateral symmetry. That means if you're going to have legs, appendages sticking off the sides, you will probably have an even number. And if you, that's why I mentioned the insects and spiders and crabs and us. So even is a even number of appendages is kind of necessitated by the bilateral symmetry of our very, very deep ancestors. So it's a kind of a heritage item that we have. But I wonder, is it a necessary item? So one of the things that I want to explore with you a little mm -hmm. bit is when you're, I mean, your title, as I said, was astrobiologist, mm -hmm. and we're imagining what life might be like. So what are the parameters that constrain life? And you've got a paper online at the moment about uh, where life can live on the planet, you know, water, pressure, temperature, mm -hmm. chemistry, right. and so on. Is it a necessary thing, or, or is it just because we don't have an example of it and life has, just happens to have gone down this way by chance? Uh, right, we you, right. Well, when you're trying, as a scientist, when you're trying to answer such questions, I don't like to speculate. I rather see at the variety that life has exploited over the four and a half billion years that the planet has existed and maybe the, about four billion years that life has existed. For example, I just talked about bilateral symmetry, and I talked about it being only 600 million years old. So if you go... That now, 600 million is, it's about, let's see, one-tenth, no, one-eighth of the amount of time that life has been on this planet. So that's a very short time. It sounds like a long time, 600 million. Whoa, that's a long time. But really, that's not a long time. So the question then becomes, what other types of body plans has life been able to exploit as it evolved? Right? And so the answer to that, it, one other answer to that is, uh, Radial symmetry is another. A sand dollar, for example, is radially symmetric. Something that's kind of round or a jellyfish has a radial symmetry. It doesn't have bilateral symmetry that I talked about. And so that's an alternative. And there are other alternatives. Well, for example, a tree. A tree is not kind of radially symmetric, but it also, you know, I'm not sure. It's, it's not either one of those. And so what you do as a biologist, if you want to answer this question, you look at all the variety of body plans that have evolved, and you use that as a as a way to classify what life could have done rather than say oh based, based on my intelligent uh, theory i think life could have had three because it could look like a tripod and i could invent a robot that walks on three well sure but life i have a lot of confidence that four billion years of the evolution is a lot smarter than we can we can think of in terms of these uh, body plan usefulness and functionality so i like to find out what we can know about the explorations that have already been done and then we can use the, based on that we can then move forward and say well it could have been a little bit different couldn't it have and people are working on robots for example that try to walk on three legs and i think the best like i remember going to a conference where they were talking about robots they were talking the mit the head of the mit media lab was talking about the robots and they were they were walking around in circles and tripping over things and they were laugh people in the audience were laughing at how they were so uncoordinated, these robots. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. If you were a, a computer and you had a brain, would you 
try to invent your own way of walking, or why don't you just use the humans around you to move you around from desk to desk and to plug you in? In other words, there would be a symbiotic relationship between creatures, creatures, creatures that were good at walking around, i.e., humans, and you know their brain, the things that could think faster, and they were we were being mutual beneficial. And this is symbiosis is a principle that life has used over and over and over again. So if I were a, a laptop, I wouldn't worry about not having legs because I would have critters to, to carry me around. Uh, we, when I see everybody sitting around tapping on computers, I sometimes wonder if our future is to nurse the machinery, is to tend the machinery. And is, is it, who's really serving who in some way? Maybe it's a bit like us. You know, We spread the fruit of the seed and, and the grain of the, of the rye and so on. And uh, we're really helping the rye, aren't we, as well as just feeding ourselves in the process? Well, in 1976, Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The Selfish Gene, in which he described humans as the castles around that have been employed by genes to get to move the genes around. And uh, that idea kind of takes humans out of this control seat and puts the genes in the control seat in a way that a lot of people really find discomforting. And I think they should because there's a lot of truth to that image. So although we like to pretend that we're in control, well, we have things controlling us. And the things that are controlling us have things controlling them. So the word control is kind of like, it goes in a circle. Yeah. And that I have, I, I, I think instead of thinking pyramidally in which you have some type of godlike decision-making power and control, and then you control your dog, and then you control crops. I would think that you know A controls B, B controls C, and C controls A. That I think it's a much more fertile metaphor to try to understand the idea of control. Yes, it's a wonderful uh, self-referential type of system going on here, and. Technology does give us the illusion of control, but just try living your life without it and see how far you get. Now, last time, Charlie, you were on Fuzzy Logic, we talked about what the definition of life is, and you had a quite a, a surprising answer to this. And you talked about the energy gradient. Oh, I think that might have been the term you used. And you said, um, in fact, there's another phrase I've picked up here, and which is thermodynamic disequilibrium. Mm-hmm. And... You, you inverted the relationship, so I said that life harnesses energy, and you were saying energy harm harvests life. Is is that right? Can you reprise that for us? Yeah. Well, I I guess um, yeah. When you have, if you look at the sun, you will see convection cells the size of the moon, and what these convection cells are are big tubes of macroscopic bulk velocities taking hot material from beneath the surface of the sun, transferring it to the surface, and the heat gets to go away. So what has happened, we have a temperature gradient, so it's hotter inside the sun, cooler on the surface of the sun, and to transfer that heat, there are these highly organized structures called convection cells which do the transferring. They're set up spontaneously by a temperature gradient. They're set up spontaneously by the temperature gradient to undo the temperature gradient. So they are produced by a gradient and their effect is to undo the gradient. Another way to say that is nature doesn't like gradients. I hope you're not positing a, a, a purpose here. Well, I'm, I'm not sure whether I'd use the word purpose, but that's what convection cells do. And, they, that, and I think, analogously, there are chemical gradients, high-energy food and low-energy waste around us, and that has always been the case where there's life. And life has been set up by these gradients to undo the gradients. And that's what we do. We shove high-energy material into our mouths and put out low-energy material when we respire and when we poop and pee. 
Oh, now, earlier you were talking about speculating on different forms of life and so on. Yes. Now, is this a fundamental challenge that you face as an astrobiologist, that in some cases you can think or you can imagine a form of life out there outside one that we know already, and but you feel constrained about what we already know? I mean, we only have one planet that we know of with life on it at the moment, and, of course, we are exoplanets there, which many may be candidates for life, perhaps, some percentage of those. But... Uh, would we recognise life if we saw it? Well, in some sense, no. And I've written an article about why I think the answer is no. Because if you don't know what life is, then how are you going to recognise it? So first we have to define what life is, and there's a lot of debate in the community about what it is. There's a traditional view that life is made out of you know, animals, plants, fungi, bacteria. There's a lot of debate about whether viruses are life forms or not. There's a lot of debate about whether prions are life forms or not. There's a lot of debate about whether computers are life forms or not. Some people think fire and crystal could be considered life forms. Now, when as a physicist, you look at all these debate and you say, okay, can I come up with a boundary, a classification of things that makes a little bit more sense? And Physicists have no problem with this, and so they say, oh, there's a class of things called far-from-equilibrium dissipative systems. Now, the one problem with that is that includes hurricanes and convection cells and the red spot on Jupiter, and it might even include stars and galaxies. So here we have this classification of far-from-equilibrium dissipative systems. It's a big box, but the traditional life forms are only a small part of that box. And these are the small part that has DNA inside of it. You and I have DNA, bacteria have DNA, viruses are DNA and RNA. And so we have to say, does life really require an internal information source that is driving a far from, or controlling, if you will, a, a far from equilibrium dissipative structure? Or couldn't we have systems that whose information was on the outside? For example, Let's take you. We can take your sperm and your DNA and put it on a computer bank, and then we can castrate you, get rid of all your DNA, and we don't need it anymore, oh, right? No, no, so, thanks. No, no, but this is true. But the whole point is that life forms have information inside them, but why couldn't you just take the information inside them, take it out, and then whenever you wanted to reproduce, you press a button and say, oh, there's the information. Isn't, there's no requirement that the information that controls the life form be located inside the life form. So if a computer, for example, a computer, let's say computers get really smart and they say, hey, I, I need to reproduce. So they don't need to have it inside. They know that, hey, there's a memory bank over there somewhere, like a library, that is controlling the information that, that determined the architecture of who they are. So they just say, okay, press the button. I want to make sure that that gets reproduced. But it, there's no requirement that that information be located inside the, the, the organism, inside the computer itself. So if, and you can play with a lot of ideas like this, and it sounds kind of crazy because the traditional view is plants. Animals, fungi, bacteria, single-celled eukaryotes, maybe viruses. So that view is, I think, constraining, it's probably confusing. And so we're struggling with, under, with trying to figure out, is that narrow view of life something that we can extrapolate elsewhere in the universe? Maybe, maybe not. Is this broader view of far-from-equilibrium dissipative systems extrapolatable? Of course, yes. We've already seen piles and thousands and billions of 
far from equilibrium dissipative systems elsewhere in the universe. We're reluctant to call them life because they don't have intelligence, but neither does a tree or, a, or a, the, the E. coli in my colon. So intelligence is not really a, a factor here, but they don't have DNA. Well, you know, if you can think of, how about a virus that doesn't have DNA? It's an RNA virus. Well, okay, well, what about pre-RNA? There had to be something that came before RNA. For example, if you believe that life evolved from non-life, by, that undermines any type of rigid definition you could ever believe in. Because you started out with non-life, you ended up with life. Where in that chain, that continuous chain, are you willing to put a black line and say everything on that side is life, everything on that side is non-life? That's a silly prospect. And so the whole idea of separating life from non-life in a rigid way seems hopeless in in light of what we know about evolution. Yeah, so it's a really difficult concept to grasp. Maybe it's one of those things that we say, I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it, or is that that's, that's way like, too vague well, for scientists. Well, that's perhaps. like pornography. That's That's been said about pornography, but it's also, you could say that about love. Yeah. Hey, look, I think we might take a quick break to catch your brains up, or let your brains catch up with your ears. Uh, you are listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. My name is Rod, and our special guest today is Dr. Charlie Lyon. We were from Mount Stromlo Observatory, and we are talking about life, aliens, and all sorts of weird stuff like that. And here's something you asked for last time we were on air with you, Charlie. Moby and We Are All Made of Stars. And that's Moby here on Fuzzy Logic 2 X 98.3 FM. And if you missed this amazing conversation with Dr. Charlie Lionweaver, who, by the way, is not just from Mount Stromlo, he's also from the Research School of Earth Sciences, proud sponsors of Charlie Lionweaver and today, Fuzzy Logic. We're talking about aliens. So I'm wondering, is intelligence an inevitable outcome of a suitably rich environment for life? Well, there's a lot of debate in the world about this and the astro- astrobiological community about this and uh, for example a lot of the people who are involved in SETI the search for extraterrestrial intelligence assume that human-like intelligence is a convergent feature of evolution that is that if life starts elsewhere on a planet that is not too dissimilar from the earth that creatures will evolve that eventually will become more like humans and create radio telescopes with which the SETI people could communicate. And there is another, on the other side of this debate, are biologists who have studied the history of the evolution of life on Earth, and they find that once a species goes extinct, it doesn't re-evolve. This is called something called Dalo's Law. And they see that human-like intelligence has not evolved elsewhere in other species and so they are not very confident or matter of fact they're very very skeptical about the assumption that human-like intelligence would evolve elsewhere notice i'm using the word human-like intelligence you use the word intelligence and there's a distinction to be made there because seti people for one are not looking for some fuzzy intelligence that a dog or a pigeon or a parrot or a tree might have, but they're looking for human-like intelligence. Are we into the same slippery turf of definition here as we were with life? Well, in all big questions, that's usually where you have to start because there are still big questions because the terms are hard to define. And uh, uh, so I... Well, if you think... For example, I, I taught a course called Are We Alone? And one of the things, first things we talked about is who, what's the word we mean? Are we talking about we humans or we apes 
or we vertebrates, or we eukaryotes, all the members of the larger and larger groups, that, well, all the classifications which are larger and larger and more generic, what class are we talking about? Are we interested in jellyfish and other planets, or are, only, are we only interested in human-like intelligent critters with whom we could talk and with they could solve all, all our problems? Well, there does seem to be a human desire. Like we're talking about aliens at the front of the show. There seems to be a great innate desire in us to find other, what we would call intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and when you think about... Here's an here's a analogy for that type of reasoning. Imagine you were a linguist and you were studying English. And then you learned a little bit of German. Say, oh, look at that. English looks a lot like German. Then you studied some Scandinavian, some French, and some Italian, and you realized that, wow, these are Indo-European. These are, these are languages. This is, these are all the languages. And you would define language as Indo-European language because you weren't exposed to any other language. And then you went to China, and you saw that they weren't speaking any Indo-European language. And you say, hey, they're, they're, they don't have language here. That's because you had had a you had been grown up with a you had grown up with a a rather narrow ver- vision of what language is. So um, now, what's the point of the story? <laughs> You're talking about assuming human intelligence. Yeah. So the so the point of the story is, uh, if you assume that human intelligence is the only kind of intelligence, then uh, you're bound to lose out because I. Th- because human-like intelligence is a species-specific characteristic. And I think any biologist will tell you that Captain Kirk could not have had sex with all those sexy aliens and had fertile offspring because they had evolved elsewhere. The whole idea of having Superman evolve on a planet called Krypton and come here and have sex with, who is it? Who is it? Uh, Uh, Lois. Lois Lane. And then have children is a silly idea. And any biologist knows that. And any physicist should know that. On the other hand... Carl Sagan and many people involved in the SETI community think that there are things called functionally equivalent human beings. That is, not species-specific. They're not so compatible with us that we could exchange genes and have fertile offspring, but rather the idea that having a big brain to understand things is an adaptation that has a universality that leads us and should lead us to believe that it should have evolved elsewhere. Now, I think that there is evidence on Earth that shows why Carl Sagan is wrong. I should say that I admire Carl Sagan. He got me into the business of cosmology. I read his book, The Cosmic Connection, for example. I thought it was incredible. His vision of having a a mentality that overcomes the tribalism that you're born into is incredible. On the other hand, I think he was a brain worshiper. And uh, so uh, uh, on this planet, we've had many independent examples of the evolution of macroscopic species and these independent you said at the early part of the show we only have one example of life well we have multiple examples multiple laboratories in which a human-like intelligence could have evolved but didn't we know for example that our brain tripled in size in about three million years from about three million years ago to about today so three million years is the time scale in which a a non-human brain our ancestors, turned into what we are so proud of today, a human brain, tripling in size. So three million years is a time scale, and you can ask the question, how, now in these laboratories, these separate laboratories called Australia, New Zealand, South America, India, Madagascar, all of these very large continental bodies that were separated from each other by continental drift, they evolved and evolved and evolved and evolved. For example, Australia, the continent we're sitting on now. You and I did not evolve on this continent. The Aborigines did not evolve on this continent. Humans evolved in Africa. And they came here about 50,000 years ago. We came here about 50,000 years ago. So the question, and 
So that means for about a hundred million years, critters were evolving on this continent. And you said, and you might say, well, if there is an intelligence niche, if there is a space for the where human-like intelligence is recognized by nature as being a useful characteristic, why wouldn't the kangaroos or the koalas evolve? Wouldn't a smarter kangaroo be more adapted than a stupid kangaroo? If that were the case, you'd have selection pressure to get bigger and bigger brain kangaroos. And then 50,000 years ago, when we came to Australia, we would find big brain kangaroos who could beat us at the game that we call our own now. So there's something about the selective pressure in Africa, in that particular location, that gave advantage to intelligence. I wouldn't put it that way. I would put it, uh, there's something about the selective pressure in every single continent which leads to the unique species that evolved there. That's how I would put it. Okay. Um, Now, you used the word evolution in your uh, discussion a moment ago. And so is evolution something we can take as universal? I mean, what I'm looking for is there are things we know about the way life is set up to work on the examples we know. But what can we what can we extrapolate? There must be some things that we can extrapolate forward. So we've talked about the use of energy or energy using life, as however you want to put that. Is evolution something you think would be universal no matter where you found life? Well, again, we'd have to define evolution. There's something called Darwinian evolution in which you you know, there was a debate about hundred and fifty years ago between I guess Darwin and Lamarck and the English-speaking world thinks that Darwin won that debate hands down. But as we find out more and more about the evolution of bacteria, for example, we're finding that it looks suspiciously like bacteria and other creatures can change the genome and change the epigenome that they pass on to their offspring such that there is something that resembles Lamarckian evolution, something that resembles acquired characteristics that can be passed on. It's not not to say that Darwin was wrong. Darwin was overwhelmingly right. But there are aspects of evolution which are remarkably Lamarckian. And now we can talk about, for example, again, Richard Dawkins talked about memes and ideas and how they are kind of like evolutionary things that evolve with time. And uh, and they're contained in books and the words that we're speaking right now. And you can use the Darwinian evolution to apply to them. And it's kind of strange, but it seems to work. And so there is a pretty broad support for the idea that the concept of evolution is, well, I, I don't want to use universal, but at least terrestrial. And I think that if you get self-reproducing molecules, that the ideas of Darwinian evolution would apply to them. And that's probably one of the more robust statements we can make about life elsewhere because I think we even define life as something that evolves in a Darwinian fashion. So you need some underlying mechanism that is able to sustain itself for whatever and then vary a little bit and then some pressure to allow the non-unsuccessful variations to be trimmed and the successful ones to, to proceed and by successive incremental mistakes in the copying that you end up with something that was more inverted commas advanced or well, I, I can tell you you would, wouldn't object to the word advanced there but I, I would definitely object. I don't believe in the word advanced it has no meaning but if you're an advanced person I'll be a pyramid person no, no, no I'm not actually <laughs> and in fact Darwin himself said that there is no inevitable end goal to the evolution that it's it's just whatever happens to work in that environment. Uh, so, it is, again, there's, we, can't, we have to disentangle our human desire to say that we are special in some way. 
In fact, you were talking earlier about examples of uh, language, and you said, like, uh, we assume that maybe if we went to China and we trying to understand Chinese, we say they don't have a language. Well, I've just been reading a book, and in different cultures around the world, they don't have base 10. Some have got base 2, and there's base 20, and there's all sorts of variations on that. And another one was, at what time does the new day start? So there was this com- dialogue I was listening to the other day, and in some cultures, the day starts at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. Not midnight, like we do in Australia or in, in Western countries. Mm-hmm. So let's just go back to intelligence a little bit. Would you say that memory, for example, when one of the facets of, uh, given that we have the slippery term intelligence, can we say anything about what an intelligence would be? Is memory an, an essential part of that, or the ability to... Uh, posit and solve problems in an unfamiliar environment, are they necessarily parts of intelligence? Well, I think the first thing you need to remind yourself of, and I remind myself of a lot, and that is whatever intelligence is, it has evolved. And when you have evolved, you have evolved to keep the owner alive. That's the main purpose, just like the purpose of a lung or a heart or a liver or your muscle or your eyelashes. Those, all of the, the, the things that you are and you have, the organs, have evolved to keep you alive and kept your ancestors alive, and that's why you're here today. So no matter what you want to say about intelligence, you have to put it in that category. That's the first thing. And, and then you have to say, well, if usually the term intelligence is referred to a central nervous system, and that is what animals have because we move. We move around the environment. We have to go find our food. And to do that, we need to quickly react to, oh, there's a hole, there's a door, wait, there's a tree, oh, there's a lion. And we have to watch out for these things. And so we need some type of central nervous system that can process information on the fly to quickly get us to go go somewhere else. If you're a tree, you don't do that. You are locked to the ground. You have a memory of, of course, of, of you know, let's see, you're sitting there, you're pulling up water out of the ground, you're absorbing photons from the sun, and if something gets in your way, you try to move around them. If you, you can't find any water, you move into the water pipes to block our sewage lines, for example, <laughs> and you might call that intelligence, or you might not, but depends on, or a fungus, for example. Fungus have wonderful ways of, you know, protecting themselves and defending themselves from uh, viruses, for example, and other bacteria. So, Whatever feature you're talking about, about a living thing, it has evolved. Our particular type of adaptation as animals is to have a central nervous system. And you're asking me this question because you want to say, how special are we to have this central nervous system? And I want to tell you, there are many, many other ways to adapt to the world than have a central nervous system. And then you want to say, well, what makes ours special? And I say, well, there are many, many ways to adapt to to the universe and stay alive. Are we have a particular way. Other creatures have another way that does not involve central nervous system at all. So, in some sense, I, I guess um, I I think to continually ask ourselves, what makes us unique? Why are we unique? Why? It's kind of like here's the thought process: we are unique, we are good, we are special. Now let's find out how we got that way. And I think it's the wrong way of putting the the cart in front of the horse. I think we have to find out how did what are we, and how did we get that way. But not necessarily, we are special, we are good, we're the best thing that ever happened to the earth. Why? Or what was the special features of our evolution that made us so good? 
that I think is the, the thing that's wrong with a lot of the questions being asked about how special humans are. Okay, now one of your recent publications was talking about the NASA notion of follow the water. Can you just take us through that? Right. Well, all traditional life forms that we know about on planet Earth require liquid water during some some time of their lifespan. There are a lot of things that can live through a drought and dry up, but when water comes, they burst into life, and they need that in order to reproduce. So liquid water seems to be a universal feature, terrestrial universe, hmm. terrestrially universal feature of all traditional life, not the far from equilibrium dissipative systems that I talked about earlier. They don't need water. They just need a like, gradient of some kind. But I'm talking about traditional life uh, needs liquid water at some time during its life cycle. So if that's the case and we're interested in that type of life, then what we need to do is follow the water. Where in the universe can we find liquid water? And um, I grew up being taught that anywhere that there's liquid water, life will have found a way to evolve and to, to use it, to live in that environment. And our paper that we published about, I don't know, six months ago, was quantifying the places on Earth where there's liquid water that life was not able to inhabit. And these are, for example, that when you get water above 122 degrees Celsius, Actually, it boils at, at, in this studio. But if you get it under high pressure, you can have liquid water at 122. You can have liquid water at 200 degrees Celsius, 300, even up to 350 if you have enough pressure. So there are places under the earth where there is water, liquid water, at high pressure. Hydrothermal vents is one example, for example. And uh, so some places are so hot that you cannot have life. Life uh, traditional life seems to have a limit of 122 degrees Celsius. At least that's the current limit. I have some colleagues who are, think they have some evidence for life existing in hydrothermal vents at about 250 degrees Celsius. That's, that's almost twice as high. That is twice as high as the current limit. But somewhere around there, you can get too hot, and the water above that temperature is unable to support, unable to, to be a habitat for life. Is it because it's, it's affecting the chemical processes inside the, the life, is it? Well, when, when you're a life form, you're made out of molecules. Molecules, when they get heated too high, they go, and they break apart. Right. They dissociate. And so when you have a thermal temperature that gives you enough kinetic energy to dissociate molecules, then you're dead. And uh, what about other forms of life, such as, say, silicon-based rather than carbon-based? Is it, it's, it doesn't have the same combinatorial, or oh, big, difficult word there, as many combinations as you can make with silicon as you can with carbon. Am I right there? Well, I think you're right, but I wouldn't necessarily. I don't think that's necessarily the the right reason. So when not, when uh, my, when I'm asked, well, couldn't you have silicon life as well as carbon life? And even before you get started on that question, uh, the details as you started to do, you could say. Well, how much carbon is there in the universe and how much silicon is in their universe? Let's suppose that there is equal likelihood to make life based on carbon and based on silicon. If that were the case, well, we know that there's about 10 or 15 times more carbon in the universe than there is silicon. Therefore, just a simple calculation tells you that there would be 10 or 15 times more carbon-based life forms than there would be silicon-based life forms. That might be the case. If it is the case, then it's no surprise that we're carbon-based. But And we should go looking for carbon-based organisms. Uh, and silicon, we might find some silicon-based, but I, I doubt it for some chemical reasons. But based only on the abundance, they're not going to be that common. Well, uh, speaking as a carbon-based life form, um, very interesting this topic, of course. We're talking about forms of life that we typically call 
life. There are other limits too, parameters for which life, in which life can exist. So pressure, temperature, chemistry. What do we know about those sort of habitats outside our planet? Well, I, I talked in some detail about the temperature ones, and I think those temperature ones are referring to molecules, and the molecules that we see on Earth are similar to the molecules that we'll see elsewhere. We know that by looking at the chemistry and the atomic spectra of stars, that we, the same elements are everywhere, that there are electrons and protons, and the universe is made out of the same elements that the Earth is made out of. So the Earth is not special in that sense. There's no secret ingredient of the material on Earth. Um, um, so I talked about the temperature. How about energy? Now, we, now life, if you just have water and you don't have any energy source, you're not going to have life. Life has to have an energy source. Now, there's a little, there's one concept that's important here, and I think we mentioned the last time I was here, and there's a difference between energy and free energy. So, to give you an example, if this room were filled with the plasma of a billion degrees, there would be a lot of energy here. But, we could, and if, but if the whole room, the whole universe were filled with this plasma, there would be energy everywhere, but we could not extract it. Now, take the same amount of energy, put it over there, put it on the right side of this room. The left side of the room put nothing, no energy. And then what you can do, you can put a piston there. Whoop, the whole thing will do work. And so you can extract the energy. So the ability to extract energy relies on a gradient of energy. If you have equilibrium, you cannot extract. You, you're dead. Life depends on non-equilibrium. That's what we're exploiting when you had wheat picks this morning or toast. You took the sunlight, which is a non-equilibrium object, creating photons, putting them to Earth. That makes electrons pop up into and create elect, uh, energy-rich material, which you can shove in your mouth and get that energy. But when you do that, you're extracting the free energy, and then you're creating more equilibrium. That's what life forms do. They're trying to make the universe more closer to equilibrium in the same sense that a convection cell on the surface of the sun is trying to get rid of that temperature gradient between the inside and the outside. Life is doing that, we're doing that, and we rely on that for our survival. And any alien life will also rely on that. Ah, now that reminds me that we also, last time you were on the show, we talked about entropy and the universe heading towards an eventual uh, heat death, I think it might be the term. Mm -hmm. But I've wondered since then, is there an evolution to complexity? So when the universe started from a singularity, and, and I take it there's problems with the word started even, so let's not go there for the moment, but uh, from the singularity, the complexity was probably very low, I would guess, because you've got a small number of types of things and forces and so on operating. And then it all sort of shot out within an inflationary period of the, of the expansion of the universe and so on, and the complexity has gone up. And we've got planets and galaxies and stars and suns and forms of life and people like us sitting in a studio here in fuzzy logic. And then over time, the complexity, am I right, is going to decline toward, as we head towards heat death, that it's just going to think it'll just gradually get boring? Is, is that a sort of story that you can relate to? Uh, yes and no. Um, I, I, you know, we had a conference that lasted two and a half days of the world's experts trying to say, trying to answer the question: Is there a general principle towards increasing complex complexity in the universe? It was sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation. It was essentially a a uh, humble Christian billionaire who invested billions and in, I'm not sure billions, but many dollars in trying to investigate questions at the interface between science and religion. And the 
and so they sponsored this semi-scientific, semi-religious question of, is there a general principle towards increasing complexity? And as a cosmologist, I would I approach this by saying the following. Uh, you know the difference between energy and free energy? Well, what the study of entropy does is quantify, puts a, a measure on something called free energy. And that's what you need as a life form to live, to survive. Now, so in order to increase complexity, you have to survive. And any complex thing, all the complex things we have around us, a radio studio or a car or a watch or whatever, a tree, a dog, all of these things are life forms that require free energy. Now, the free energy we know is decreasing in the universe. Right? So you can talk about well, things seem complex. That's because we've used up a lot of free energy to get where we are today. We will continue to get complex as long as we get a free a supply of free energy. But the the tank of gasoline, the hydrogen inside the sun, is going to run out in five billion years. Other stars will run out of hydrogen in, let's say, a hundred billion years or two hundred billion years. Eventually, we will run out of free energy, and when that happens, you don't have enough. Uh, you can't survive, let alone get more complex. So I think the answer is no, there is not a general principle towards increasing complexity, particularly on a hundred billion to trillion year time scale. On the other hand, as long as we're getting this free lunch from the fusion inside the sun that's going on, turning hydrogen into helium, then we can continue doing things and evolving and turning the internet into a self-aware creator that will use us as, you know, its energy source or something. <laughs> but, uh, and that's more complex and Google will get a better algorithm so we don't have to troll through 20, uh, you know, answers to our queries. All right. Uh, look, we're, we're running to a close now. You have a, uh, a talk that you're going to be doing on Thursday night. What's that? Well, there's a Korean astronaut, a female Korean astronaut, who's going to come to town. And uh, I think the Korean embassy and the ambassador will be there, and a lot of VIPs from the Korean uh, community in uh, Canberra. And we're going to talk about planetary science and the International Space Station and generally habitability in the universe and possibly alien life. Uh, and so we're, that's what we're going to be doing. Okay, and uh, we've got some lots of astronomy-related things coming up on Fuzzy Logic, and we might be able to get one of your colleagues from Mount Stromo onto the program next week. We'll see. Uh, on Saturday, and a big hello to Anya from Transforming Perceptions, because we're going to be talking about mental health and psychotropic drugs and the whole practice of using pharmaceuticals to treat mental conditions and I'm going to be a guest on that show and we have uh, Dr. Jeffrey Louis uh, who's a practicing neuro dot 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 uh, neuropharmacologist maybe yes oh, that will do I'll go with that uh, on the show and, I, and, and he seems like a great bloke so I'm looking forward to that along with uh, Fiona as well and uh, by the way, Dr. Jeffrey Louis is a fellow of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, so he's a big deal here. I'm very pleased to get him on the radio. Uh, as I said earlier, we've got uh, tomorrow's Ask Fuzzy is about why pigeons bob their head and a bit of a sidetrack on uh, the whole thing of curiosity-driven science and uh, how sometimes we just have to we just have to ask the questions and see where it leads us. Uh, and a couple of weeks after that. We're going to be doing a live broadcast from Tidbinbilla from the space tracking station out there, the big radio telescope, so I'm really looking forward to that. And on top of that, uh, I've been having conversation with uh, David Renneke, who is a very uh, popular science uh, communicator and uh, a very strong advocate of uh, astronomy. 
And so that's all coming up on Fuzzy Logic. Lots more excitement and really looking forward to that. So it's been a great pleasure to have you on Fuzzy Logic today, Dr. Charlie Lone River. Thank you very much to yourself and to the Research School of Earth Sciences and Mount Stromlo for, for coming on. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Rod. And uh, we look forward to lots more complexity, entropy, and explorations of life and intelligence and assorted other stuff here uh, on Future Times on uh, Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. My name is Rod, and I'm going to play some random piece of music off the computer here. It's called Trick Me by whoever. I don't know. I don't care. See you later. (laughs) 